You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning. If you didn't hear just now, my name is Matt. Um, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm really excited to be here this morning. Y'all mind if I preach today? All right, so we're continuing this series uh, this week in the, in the book of Colossians. My mic feels just a little bit hot. I might talk a little bit louder, just FYI. We're, we're, we're continuing this series through the book of Colossians that we have titled The Supremacy of Christ. And Justin did this incredible job last week of opening us up in the book of Colossians and outlining a bit about Paul's uh, purposes in writing the book and a little bit about what the book is about. And as we move further into the book, it's going to start to get really dense. Paul is going to start to move very quickly. He hardly takes a breath as he unpacks this book of Colossians. And so before we dive in, I just wanted to establish for a little bit, maybe in case you weren't here last week, what do we mean when we say the supremacy of Christ? When we say that Christ is supreme, when we say that he has supremacy, what is it exactly that we mean? When we say that Christ is supreme, what we mean is that there is nowhere you could go in all of creation where his power does not reign in full. It means, it means there's nowhere you could go in all of creation where you would not be under his jurisdiction right? It means, um, as Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said, that there is not one square inch of all creation over which Jesus Christ does not declare, that's mine. Okay, so when we say that he is supreme, we are saying what Christians have said for 2,000 years all the way back to the beginning, that he is Lord, but he is not just Lord. He is Lord of all, and all means all. Okay? Now, here's why that's important. Here's why that's important. Because Paul is writing this letter to this church of people he's never met. He's 120 miles away in prison in Ephesus, and he's sending messengers back and forth to this church. Why is he so concerned about this church that he would go to this trouble? Was well, because a false teaching had infiltrated this church and had sprung up and was starting to sway the believers in this church. And this false teaching is an early form of what's going to come to be called Gnosticism, okay? Now, Gnosticism is a philosophy. It's a Greek philosophy. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics basically taught this. They taught that God is a transcendent spiritual being who is holy and who has nothing to do with the material world because they believe that all matter is evil, okay? The matter that makes up the earth evil. The matter that makes up your body, evil. And so the transcendent Holy Spirit God can have nothing to do with the evil matter of creation. This God did not create creation. This God created other heavenly beings, uh, intermediaries, um, emanations, and these beings created other heavenly beings, and these beings created other heavenly beings. And one of those beings, several generations down, is the God of Genesis, who created the world as a hostile act of rebellion to the holy, perfect God who has nothing to do with matter, 
okay? Now, the Gnostics believed that the solution to the human predicament of being locked in the evil material world was to achieve this special knowledge to gain it, and that somehow through this special knowledge, this wisdom, you could escape the evil materiality of the world. And they believed that there were certain human beings who were capable of bridging the gap between the spiritual and the material, and they believed that Jesus Christ was one of those beings. So here's the subtlety about the Gnostics, all right? They didn't dismiss Jesus. They didn't dismiss him. They thought Jesus was wise. They thought Jesus was important. They thought Jesus was spiritual. They thought Jesus was powerful. They didn't dismiss him, but they dethroned him. And that's how they devalued him. They didn't totally dismiss him, but they did dethrone him. And what Paul is writing in this letter to this church, what he, what he wants them urgently to understand uh, is that to dethrone him is to dismiss him. And you can't do it anyway. He wants, them, he wants them to remember that Jesus has accomplished something for them. That he's accomplished something for them that actually means that their entire life on the other side of that accomplishment can be different than it was before. And so he doesn't want them to forget what Jesus has accomplished for them and who they are in light of that accomplishment. Now, as we go through, uh, as we go through this passage, you're going to see little bits about what Paul is doing, and you're going to go, oh, yeah, I can see how that is, um, you know, is against the Gnostics, certain things that he's going to say. Now that I've explained what they believe, you're going to be like, oh, now I understand why he says that. But here's the deal. Gnosticism is not just uh, an artifact of the past. Gnosticism is alive and well in the American church today, all right? Anytime we talk about how the world is all going to hell and someday God is going to vacuum us up out of the world and take us to heaven while the world gets destroyed, that's Gnosticism, all right? Anytime uh, we act as though Jesus and God the Father are different beings with wills that are sometimes at odds with one another, that's Gnosticism. Anytime we devalue our own bodies as less important or subordinate to our consciousness or our spirit, that's Gnosticism. Matter is not evil. Matter is good. God created it, and he said it's good. Your body is not evil. Your body's good. It was made by God. Okay, so as we get in, I want you to see some of the stuff that he's dealing with with the Gnosticism, but that's not the main thing that we're going to focus on this morning. Whenever we read a letter like this, especially with Paul, there's always kind of two meanings to what he's doing, right? Because when he writes theology, he never just writes it as a vacuum, he's, or in a vacuum. He's not writing it as a textbook just to tell you what you need to know. He's writing theology in a way that's applied to specific problems in a specific place for a specific people. And so in everything that he writes, there's what's called the contingent meaning, which is what he means for those people, and it's why he's writing the book. And then there's also the coherent meaning, which is the grand story of the theological narrative that we can get from synthesizing all of his writings together. And I'm probably going to spend more time in that coherent meaning space than in the contingent meaning space. And I should just repent right now for any time I've gotten up here and that what I've done is more teach the contingent meaning than preach the coherent meaning. All right, so let's, let's dive into Colossians 1. This is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. This text is the reason that I do what I do, because um, I was 19 years old, and Josh Chevalier heard me teach this text in a chapel service at Concordia University when he was my college pastor, and he said, we need to get you some opportunities to do this some more. So this text started a lot for me. 
Let's jump right in. Actually, let's just read the whole thing. Would y'all stand, please, if you're able, just for the reading of our, of our teaching text this morning? Get a load of this. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. These are the very words of God. Please be seated. Father, we need you. We need you to speak into our lives. We need you to speak into our world. So open our ears this morning and speak to us through the scripture, by the spirit. Magnify your son this morning for our good and for his glory. Amen. Verse 13 says that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. If Paul is writing about a rescue from a kingdom, the quintessential example of that in his mind would be the exodus of the ancient Hebrews from dominion and slavery and Egypt and captivity. Paul is kind of calling on the exodus narrative as a way of, of, of describing the shape of our own spiritual journey. Right, so just like the ancient Hebrews were not always slaves, but they were taken into captivity in Egypt, they were oppressed, they were colonized, they were, um, they were constrained, they were forced to do the work and serve the will of the king of that kingdom. They had no national identity, they were helpless, they had no hope. God had to come in, God had to deliver them, God had to redeem them. And Paul says the exact same thing is what's happened with us. So we weren't, we weren't in captivity in Egypt, we were in captivity in slavery in the kingdom, in the dominion of darkness, in captivity to sin. So we didn't have a Pharaoh who was forcing us to do things. We have sin, which is oppressing us, and forcing us to serve 
its purposes and its ends, and where God bursts in to, the, to Egypt to free his people, and the ransom payment was a Passover lamb. When God broke into the dominion of darkness to come get us and to bring us into a kingdom of the son he loves, the ransom payment was the son. It was the son. Verse 14 says, or, or back it all up. He, he's brought us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption means a ransom. It means we were bought. The word forgiveness means to, to set free from prison. It means we were set free. Now, why, there's the reason I, I backed up and started with these two verses that we already talked about last week. Why, why is it the kingdom of the son? Why is Jesus the king? What makes him unique or special or so powerful that he should be called the king of this kingdom? That's what we're going to look at in the rest of our passage. We're going to look at three different ways that Jesus Christ is supreme. Three different ways that he exercises his authority in the world. The first thing we see is that he is supreme in his ability to reveal God. He's supreme in his ability to reveal God. We're going to look at the supremacy of Christ in Revelation. Verse 15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. This word image is uh, it's the word icon. Icon. An icon in Greek culture was the likeness of an emperor or a king. They put it on a coin. They put it on a banner. They put it maybe on a, on a document. Remember when they're asking Jesus, should we pay taxes? He says, bring me a coin. And then he says, whose image is on the coin? And Paul is using this word to throw it in the face of the Gnostics. Again, so much more than just the, the, the face of an emperor on a little coin or on a little flag. Jesus is the living, breathing image of, we're going to get even crazier now, the invisible God. Okay, he is the living, breathing image of the invisible God. Now, this is wild. This is wild that Paul would talk like this. I mean, Paul grew up studying the Hebrew scriptures. And some of the people in his audience, at least the ones who are, who are Jewish, would be familiar with these scriptures. And they grow up hearing stories. Uh, about how God moved and about how God acted and about how God provided. And story after story, they, they see that God moves, that God acts, but they never see God. They never see him. God said, Jacob, you have to let me go because daylight's coming and I can't be seen on this side once the sun comes up. He told Moses, you can hide in the cleft of the rock, but if you peek, you're gonna die. No one can look at me and live. He brought Isaiah up into the throne room of heaven, and Isaiah saw the glory of God, but he never saw God's face. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God is manifesting his power, and they never, ever see him until finally he says, I want to be seen. I don't just want to be heard. I don't just want to be talked about. I want to be seen. I want to be touched. And I can't just send anybody to represent me. Because other people had tried to represent God for us. David tried to represent God to the nation of Israel. And somewhere between Bathsheba and bloody wars, he utterly failed to do it. Solomon tried to represent God to Israel. 
and he was carried away by lust. He was carried away by wealth. He was carried away with an obsession with his own power and status. He failed. The prophets tried to represent God to Israel. Jeremiah tried to represent God to Israel, but he hated the people who he was preaching to. And, if, and he hated the fact that he was even called to preach. Over and over and over again, human beings had tried to represent God. God says, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. I want to be seen. And I'm not just going to send any person. I'm going to send me to represent me. I'm going to send my son into the world to reveal me, to manifest me to everyone who can see. And so Jesus then is God's definitive statement concerning himself. There is no clearer word, no more emphatic word, no more powerful word that God could say to any of us than the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the only one in all of creation to whom God has given the authority to reveal him. And so that means when we come to church on Sunday mornings, we're not, just, we're not coming to engage with an unseen, distant deity who is holy and wants nothing to do with the evil world. We're coming to commune with a God who has a face that you can know. And so what is God like? You look at Jesus. What does God sound like? What does Jesus sound like? What does God want? What did Jesus want? You can open the gospels and look and see that when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it's God saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That when Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart, it is God saying, I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. That when he says, I came to call the right, or I came to call sinners, not the righteous, it's God saying, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. When the disciples asked him, show us the Father, he said, you're looking at him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. That is Jesus' supremacy, his authority, his unique authority in Revelation. But he's not just the supreme revealer of God. He's not just supreme over Revelation. He's also supreme over creation. The same verse, verse 15, goes on. It says, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, don't get that twisted. He's the firstborn of all creation, not in the sense that he was the first created being, but in the sense that he has a special position in relation to the creation. The, the firstborn title, it means that Jesus has priority over creation, that he comes before it. It means that he has authority over it, and it means that he has ownership of it, and that one day he'll inherit it all. He's the firstborn over all creation. Why, though? Why is he the firstborn over all creation? Look at verse 16. And when we do, just pay attention to the prepositions, okay? By, in, for, through. Pay attention to these as we read verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Did you see all those prepositions? All things created in him. All things created through him. All things created for him. Like, Paul is not just rambling 
He's not just throwing words around. The people who he's writing to had conceptions of God. They understood that a God was someone who had a plan and someone who had power and someone who had some kind of purpose. They could execute uh, the plan with the power to achieve the purpose, and that's what a God was. And Paul uses those same categories here in verse 16. He says, all things were created in him. That's the plan of God. He says, all things were created through him. That's the power of God. And he says, all things were created for him, and that is the purpose of God. Jesus made absolutely everything. There are two categories of things in the universe. It's God and then everything else. It's Jesus and everything else. It is God and creation. And the relationship between God and creation is always fixed in such a way that Jesus always has authority over all creation. He always has it. Now, we see him exercise it in the Gospels, don't we? When he woke up from the nap in the bottom of the boat and came up to the top, and he told the wind, stop it. And the wind stood at attention. He told the waves, be still, and they fell flat on their face. He went to to the wedding in Cana, and he spoke to the water, and the water blushed at the sound of his voice. He has power and authority over all creation and still does. And if there's only two categories of things in the universe and one is God and one is everything that's not God, which category do we go in? We are in the creation category, okay? Which means that everything that has to do with Jesus' authority over creation is his authority over us. Now, that might seem obvious to you, right? Oh, he's, he, yes, Jesus is an authority over me. He's an authority over creation. But sometimes as Christians, we talk about creation like we're not really a part of it. We're like, oh, I just love to go out in creation, right? Like we use it as a synonym for nature, like as though creation were something different. <laughs> we're not special. I mean, we're special within creation, but we're not more special than creation. We are not God. But not only do we see that Jesus created all of this, that it was created by him and through him and for him, not only do we see that he exercises his authority over creation and creation obeys him in an instant, we also see that he is sustaining his creation. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. All of creation, anywhere you could look, and infinite distances away in this universe that we know nothing about, all of it exists in a state of constant, active dependence on Jesus Christ on a moment-to-moment basis. All of it depends on him. He is working actively, holding all of it together. And if, if all of creation exists in a state of constant, active, moment-to-moment dependence on Jesus Christ, what makes us think we don't? It's because in the pride of our hearts, we don't really want to be creation. We don't really want to admit that we're creatures. We want to be God. We want to be our own God. 
That's why we don't. And you might say, well, you know, I don't really believe any of this because I, like, I'm not a Christian. I, I don't really, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, I don't believe that Christianity is true. I don't believe he has authority over all creation. Here's the thing. I didn't ask. I didn't ask. And neither does this text. This text doesn't inquire as to whether or not you believe in Jesus. This text says he created all things. He sustains all things. He's the end of all things. And everything in creation is dependent on him. Even if you don't believe in him, you're dependent on his power while you don't believe in him. Even if you don't claim him, you have to use his power, the power he provides, to deny him. That is how much a God he is. He is so much a God that even if you rebel against him, you have to use his power to declare and carry out your rebellion. That is how big Jesus is. And he's so much a God that not only can he reveal God to us perfectly, not only can he exercise authority and dominion over every square inch of creation, he is so much a God that he came to redeem his creation. He came to redeem his creation. This is the supremacy of Christ in redemption. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This word head in verse 18 is used in a complimentary way in Paul's writings. It means ruler or source. Jesus is the ruler of the church. He is the authority, period, in the church. But he's also the source. He's also the source. When we come into this place, we sing songs. Those songs didn't come from us. He's the source. When we pray, the prayers aren't just coming from He's the source of that prayer. When we experience fellowship and connection with one another, he's the source of that fellowship. Everything that we get in church as a part of this community, this spiritual life, all of it has him as his source, and all of it has him as his authority. And why is Jesus Christ the authority, the only authority, and the only source of life for the church? It's because he, was, he got up from the dead. That's why. I don't know, maybe that doesn't preach this morning, but like, I don't have a better way to say it. That's why, that's why. That's what Paul says. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus Christ is the ruler and source of the church because he rose from the dead. And let me tell you, if he didn't rise from the dead, and there's no reason any of us should speculate as to his divinity, there's no reason any of us should care what he has to say at all. But I'm also going to say this. If he didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason any of us should have ever heard of him. How many people did the Romans crucify? Tens of thousands. I mean, countless thousands of people. And every single one of them, their names are lost to history but one. Crucifixion was designed to be dehumanizing. It was designed to take a person and turn them into an object of shame and degradation. They didn't keep track of the people they crucified. They didn't remember them because they weren't people anymore. 
They have been totally dehumanized. Only one name is recorded in ancient sources outside of the Christian stream of people who are crucified by the Roman Empire. It's Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, I am waiting to hear a better argument for the resurrection than that. Because the more you learn about crucifixion, the more you go, there's no reason that anybody should have remembered his name. We do. It's because he rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, God made him Lord of all. He made him both Lord and Christ. As Peter says, in Acts 2. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of his fullness. Look, what do you need from God this morning? Like, what did you, when you walked in here this morning, what did you walk in here needing from God? Me too, man. <laughs> Thank you. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Whatever you walked in here this morning needing from God, it's in Christ. Because the fullness of God dwells in Christ, verse 20, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's definitive statement to us through Jesus Christ is that he is a reconciling God. It is that he loves his creation. It is that he wants it back. And it is that he is in the business of breaking down dividing walls of hostility, all right, Paul is writing all these letters to communities where Jews and Gentiles are now <laughs> trying to live together and they're trying to have harmony and they're trying, they're trying to get along and they're trying to be joined into one body. They're being reconciled together. You can't be reconciled to God without being reconciled to everybody else who's being reconciled to God. And God is reconciling all things, which means that everyone on this earth and all creation is on a collision course with God and we're all on a collision course with each other I mean, unless, unless we absolutely refuse to be reconciled. But that is what's happening. I mean, do we believe that God can do this? If God can reconcile all things to himself, can he reconcile Israelis and Palestinians? Yes. Can he reconcile Jews and Gentiles? Yes. Can he reconcile you and the people who've hurt you in your life? Yes, he can. He's reconciling all things to himself. How's he doing it? Because he made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Listen to this from verse, verses 21 and 22. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And we gotta know that was true about us. We gotta know that we were not just lost, that we were not confused, we were not misinformed, we were not just ignorant, we were enemies of God hostile toward God in our minds, doing evil deeds because we wanted to be our own God. Because in the pride of our heart, we don't want to be a creature. We wanted to be God. And sin seized a foothold in our pride, and it took us captive, and it colonized us, and it controls us. It's a word that's being, we're hearing that word a lot lately, the word colonize. Let's talk about how sin colonizes us. Let's talk about how sin colonizes your heart so that you love in a selfish way 
and not in a self-sacrificing way. Let's talk about how sin has colonized your mind to make your mind debased so that you can't tell the difference between good and evil and have no ability to be oriented toward God in your mind. Let's talk about how sin colonizes your relationships and makes all of them transactional so that you're constantly looking in relationships about am I, am I getting as much as I'm giving and examining all relationships based on like what am I getting out of it. Let's talk about sin has colonized your family so that dysfunctional patterns of behavior get passed down from generation to generation with little to no effort. Let's talk about how sin has colonized the way you think about money. So you only ever use money on yourself. You waste it and just mindlessly consume. Let's talk about how sin has colonized the law of God and how sin has even colonized religion so that there is a way to practice the Christian faith that instead of bringing heaven to earth actually unleashes hell on people. Sin has done all of this. We are captive to it. And that doesn't mean that we're not responsible either. We are captive to it, we are controlled by it, and it uses us as its agents in the world to do what it wants. And that frees us from zero responsibility. None of us can say, I was just doing what I was told by sin. That is our sorry state of affairs. That is why Paul says we were alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now, notice how the tense has changed from the past tense to the present tense, and actually in the Greek, what's called the perfect tense, which means it's true in the, in the present tense, and it carries on forever. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry, I coughed right into a microphone. But listen, but listen, he says, once you were alienated from God, but now, now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you three things, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That is what is true about you if you're in Christ. God looks at you. When you hate on the day, on your very worst day, when you, when you hate yourself the most, God looks at you and he sees you as holy. And he sees you as perfect. And he sees you as being free from any kind of accusation. How is that possible? It's possible because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And when we enter into that kingdom, he doesn't just set us free in a negative way that we've been set free from sin or set free from guilt. He sets us free in a positive way that we've been set free to be everything he designed us to be, that we've been set free to enter into relationship with him, to be joined to him through union with Christ, to be joined to one another, to receive a new hope, a new vision, a new purpose, and a new identity that can never be taken away from us. That... That's what we mean. That's what we mean. I'm running out of time. I've had the communion service. You better start <laughs> passing some things out. We can have the band. The band can, can, can come up. That's our hope. That's our, our, our only hope this morning. Our only hope from this text is that God can redeem us and that he has in Jesus Christ. That God can take guilty people and make us into something truly glorious. That's what redemption means. But listen, if that's really a hope that we can have, if that's really possible, and not just 
a nice idea? If it's really true that God can take guilty people and make us glorious, that's only true because Jesus Christ gave away his glorious life to become our guilt. The iniquity of us all was laid on him, Isaiah 53 says, but then as Paul amplifies, he himself became a guilt offering. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So people say, well, no, Jesus never sinned. Absolutely not. Never out of his own free will did Jesus choose to disobey the Father. When Jesus went to Calvary, he was an innocent man. But by the time he'd been through the arrest and the false trials and the high priest's house and the imprisonment and the beating and the mocking and the scourging and all of the abuse and the cross, he had become the sacrificial lamb. He had become the Passover ransom to deliver us from slavery. He had become the sin offering. And God turned his face away from Jesus, not because he was just holding our sin, not because our sin was just there. God turned his face away from Jesus because he became sinful. And he wore the crown that sinners wear because he had become one. Not out of his choice to sin, but by taking on himself all of our sin, all of our sinfulness, by taking it on his life and into his life, integrating it with his life, he became our sin. And that's why it was just when he died. Because the wages of sin is death. He got what he deserved. I didn't misspeak. He got what he deserved. How could he get what we deserve without also getting what he deserved when he had become what we are? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things, the one through whom all things were created, the one for whom all things were created, reduced to humanity, which is humiliation enough and reduced to the margins of society as a fanatical, radical, and reduced to a cross to hang and to bleed and to die all alone so that everything could start moving in the other direction. It can never go that way for us if it never came this way to us first. And that's what we're gonna come right now to celebrate when we take communion together. We celebrate that Jesus took his glorious life and he made himself into our guilt. Let me tell you the story of Armand Fernandez. Armand Fernandez is a French artist, was a French artist, he's passed away. French-born artist, lived in New York. He was a contemporary of Andy Warhol. He pops up in some of Andy Warhol's films. And when Armand Fernandez was 70 years old, he saw that a particular piece of artwork was going up for sale uh, in London. And he decided that he had to have it because it wasn't just any piece of artwork. It was one of his pieces of artwork. And 40 years before, it had sold for $6,000 at an auction. And then after decades, after Armand had 
grown and matured as an artist. He left painting behind and he, he moved into working in sculpture. And after decades, as he came to the end of his life, he realized, I, I, have, I, I wanna have more of my legacy. I wanna get, go back and get more of my early works. And so when he saw that one of his paintings had gone up for auction, he flew to London and he went to Sotheby's and he went to the auction house and he held up his paddle and he said, I want it. And someone else held up their paddle and they said, no, I want it. But they didn't know who they were bidding against. And he raised his paddle and raised his paddle and raised his paddle until he bought that painting for $326,000. And a journalist asked him afterwards, what, why would you do that? Like, make it make sense. It's not even one of your important pieces. It, and normally people buy low and sell high. But you have sold low and bought high. And here's what Armand said, Mr. Reynolds. He said, the price didn't matter to me. It was mine by creation. And now it's mine by redemption. You were created in Jesus Christ. He knows you, sees you, and loves you. And you sold yourself for so little. But he wanted you back. And he paid the absolute highest price with his own life. He was crucified, died, was buried, and descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And if a reporter was there to ask Jesus, why would you do this? Make it make, it make sense. Why would you pay so high a price like for people who don't even love you? He said, because they were mine by creation and they're mine by redemption. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to each of his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do it to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave it to each of them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. I'm gonna pray for us now. And then we're gonna do the only thing that's appropriate to do when confronted with this kind of awesome power and that's just to worship. But if during that time you need to be prayed for or you wanna talk through something, if you need encouragement, if you need help, if you know that today is the day that you need to actually submit your life to the Lord of all, then Justin, Christopher, and I will both be in the back during this set. Come talk to us. We love to talk to you, to pray for you, and to support you however we can. Let's pray, and then let's worship the one who's before all things. Father God, thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for loving us, for redeeming us, 
for hearing us. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for the gift of your son. God, help us to see him more and more for who he really is. God, help us to give more and more of our hearts to him. Help us to trust more and more in what he's done for us. God, don't let us forget it. And don't let us forget who we are in light of it. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.